Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. Lisa Lillian founded the Hungry Girl brand over 20 years ago. That's long before we even coined the term D2C or thought that the simple email newsletter format could launch an Omnimedia brand juggernaut. The email started as a personal note she shared among friends and family, but now its subscriber base is in the millions. It contains recipes, food hacks, product recommendations, among many other things. You've seen Lisa in countless TV spots over the years, but also in best-selling run of books, a magazine, branded cruises. You can see her featured in the Amazon Live Snacks and Hacks show, and even a Chew the Right Thing podcast and more. 20 years is a long time to be the face and substance of a brand. Lisa has few peers in that regard. We wanted to explore the longevity of the Hungry Girl brand, but how she sustained it both as a brand and a business. And as we gear up for our, our own annual trek to the Stein Erickson Lodge for our Email Insider Summit, we wanted to focus especially on the longevity and learnings from one of the oldest email newsletter brands ever. Lisa, welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I'm exhausted just listening to all I've done. <laughs> they did that to me at, my, at our last event. They reeled off how many events I programmed. And I got up and I suddenly felt tired as I had to start the show. <laughs> yeah. um, let's start with the state of the state. So give us a sense of, we marketers here, we love numbers. Uh, so chart out the footprint of the Hungry Girl brand. How, how many people are you reaching in each of these, some of these platforms that I mentioned? Um, well, we reach about a million via email and on social media, probably a little over 2 million um, with all the platforms. The magazine probably reaches a couple of hundred thousand people. There are either two or three issues per year. Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast, wow, we have over, I think, six or seven million listens. Wow. So each episode probably gets between 15 and 20 something thousand listens. Have I forgotten anything? Uh, I don't know. The Amazon show gets oh, thousands. Yeah. Yeah, there's Amazon Live, Facebook Live, and videos on Instagram, and those get in the tens of thousands, sometimes over 100,000 each, depending on the video. So it's it's pretty wide. There's it's a lot going on. Well, I want to get into the video strategy later, since you're on all those platforms. Um, but let's let's stick with the bit with the business side. What are the main revenue sources for the company from all of that reach? So the main revenue sources have been the email newsletter, which is sponsored. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those sponsorships are 360 deals with partners who then become part of everything from the podcast to social media videos, recipe development, sometimes even print into the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, another revenue stream is obviously publishing. I'm on my 17th book. So that's huge for us as well. Um, and Amazon itself has become a tremendous revenue stream, especially over the past, I would say, five years or so. And is that mainly through uh, sort of affiliation deals? and? Um... It's through affiliate marketing and through mm -hmm. just, you know, how it all began was we were throwing in links just to be helpful into the right. email newsletter. And 
one day we turned around and we were saying like, you know, without even trying, we're making $50,000 a year without even mm-hmm. thinking about it. So I was like, well, if we really, you know, strategize, mm-hmm. we can find a way to double, triple, quadruple those numbers. And that's what happened. And now Amazon has a live platform. So we work those deals into the live and email platforms together and it works beautifully. You have uh, sort of uh, standing promotional relationships with retailers and CPGs. I mean, I see certain retailers, I see pop up a lot like Trader Joe's um, and and some others. Is that part of the business too, is sort of this ongoing relationship with certain retailers and CPGs? Well, it's funny you bring up Trader Joe's. No, Trader Joe's, we just love Trader Joe's. just love Trader Joe's. (laughs) The audience responds to Trader Joe's. They've never... Wow. You know, give me a penny. And if they saw me in there with, you know, trying to do a live, they will shut me down. So I don't know that they even appreciate all the love we give them. But no, we do have and have had a longstanding partnership with Stop and Shop. So mm-hmm. we, we do that maybe once or twice a year with mm-hmm. a third party where we have like a, a promotion with that that store. But that's basically the only retail store we're working with currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the, the email newsletter. Uh, it's it's a daily. Um, what have been the most important changes, if any, to the format, to the tone, the content of the newsletter over these past 20 years? You know, I would say the thing that has remained constant is that it's just authenticity. And it, it hasn't really changed very much, honestly. It's like the format is, you know, Monday, there's some kind of news and new product spotting. And Tuesday, there's always a recipe. And Wednesday, we're answering, like I'm, I'm answering questions, like Ask Hungry Girl type of stuff. Thursday, there's another recipe. There's a lot of like survival guides and hacks and roundups. And that's really remained consistent over the years. But as far as the content itself, I think Hungry Girl is always about, it's not like cutting edge content. My audience is middle America. So mm-hmm. it's about, I don't want to make the trends. I sort of follow the trends. And those have changed drastically over the years. When I started, everybody was avoiding fat like the plague and carbs were the enemy and um, calorie counting was everything under the sun to these people. And dieting was at the forefront of everyone's mind. Then it changed to people becoming more ingredient focused. Mm. Um, And, you know, now of course food, everyone has their own sort of demons and and enemies when it comes to food, whether it's gluten or GMOs or carbs or whatever. So it's been an interesting ride. It used to be sort of easier to navigate those waters and now it's become a little bit more difficult, but I think the humor and the authenticity of Hungry Girl is what keeps it in the forefront of people's minds and and keeps the brand popular and current. And yet you're using, so with all of those twists and turns, all those separate, all those different constituencies all circling at once around the newsletter, it's still a single publication. You're not necessarily doing um, all of all any anything fancy in terms of personalization or dynamic content insertion or any of those tricks that a lot of email marketers do. You're just, it's one size fits all, but just you need to pay attention to what that broad constituency is. Exactly. And also what is a little bit unique about Hungry Girl is the content itself is really in the newsletter. I'm not using the newsletter to really 
push people out to read the rest of the content. Sure, mm -hmm. we do have a lot of links within the newsletter, but it's not really to finish what the newsletter starts. It's mm -hmm. more self-contained than that. And I and I think that's a little bit different as well. Now, you mentioned when before we came on, the, the, the email newsletter may have sort of maintained its focus and maintained its tone, but you've mentioned that over these 20 years, you've had to do a lot of zigging and zagging when it comes to business and revenue. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that evolution and where you are now in relation to maybe where you were just five, 10 years ago. Yeah, it has changed so dramatically. Like when I first started, there was no such thing as native advertising. There were no such thing as influencers. So I was doing all those things before everyone else and it didn't have a name. So mm -hmm. I was an influencer without even knowing it. And I was doing native advertising without even knowing it. And those deals were sort of falling into my lap because of how unique it was. And I had people clamoring to be in the newsletters with huge deals, six figure deals, just like left and right every day. It was really fun. I have to say, yeah. um, and like things, <laughs> things changed a lot because the competition became fierce. And then all of a sudden social media platforms started popping up. And so it's hard because people became very like niche. like everyone started to just do a very small slice of what I was doing, mm -hmm. which you know, in a way became a little bit hotter and more interesting to a lot of advertisers. Mm -hmm. But I have found that they've come back around. Like they mm -hmm. tried everything from blogger networks to partnering with Instagrammers to partnering with TikTokers. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I feel like my audience is very loyal. And so that really resonates with the advertisers. But all that being said, I think budgets are have been sliced in half or, you know, it's a tiny fraction of what it was. So we have more partners spending less money than we used to. We had a lot of big brands in the beginning. Now we have a lot of like baby brands and I help launch a lot of brands with still some, you know, some larger advertisers along the way. But also we had to figure out new revenue streams and Amazon became a very unexpected way to make a lot of money, as I had mentioned earlier. And so it's just about, you know, seeing what works and then really throwing a lot of strategy and effort into that. How is your, um, well, you're spending a lot of time in front of the camera. Um, you're spending a lot of time writing. I'm curious about the size and the nature of the team and how that's changed in order to accommodate all of this. Uh, when I first started Hungry Girl, it was me and one person who was a graphic designer. I never, you know, I had my background actually, and this is an interesting thing to talk about. I was involved in entertainment launches of major web endeavors. Mm -hmm. So I worked for Warner Brothers as VP of New Media, and I watched them launch Entertainum. Before that, I was at Nickelodeon, and you just we gave me a flashback. Entertainment. Yeah, totally. I, re I, re I reported on that. <laughs> Did you really? You know, it's funny because back then the thing that sort of, you know, I was not very high level. I was a director. I was a VP. So I didn't really get involved in the decision making. But I did notice people were spending a lot of money on creating these giant sort of, I don't know, Portals. entertainment yeah. platforms without any sort of business model. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just, I was thinking, how are they going to make money doing those things? And a lot of them folded pretty quickly. So what I decided to do when I launched Hungry Girl was create a very small amount of content for a large number of people, mm -hmm. which is quite the opposite of what those brands were doing. And I think, um, you know, to circle back, what was your original question? 
<laughs> well, how the team the team that has to yeah the team all size this. right. So when I started, it was me and one other person, and I said I'm never going to have a huge team unless I need it. So I would add, you know, when I started having a lot more people reading what I was putting out, I was like, well, I really need a proofreader. Now we need someone to help me. You know, we need a better CMS, so I need some tech people to help, or you know, I need a, a full time graphic designer. I need a marketing person. So I grew very organically. Mm -hmm. And the team has really remained about a dozen full-time employees for the past, mm -hmm. I'd say, 10 or 15 years or so. How do you reach newcomers? I mean, I think there are a lot of people, who, I'm sure you've got many loyal readers who have been with you for a long time. And I'm curious how you generate new ones, where you find them, what are the main points of entry for newcomers? Well, it's word of mouth and it's mostly, you know, heard that people hear about Hungry Girl through a friend. First 10 or 12 years, I think I didn't spend a penny to advertise at all. Um, and that was kind of fun. And I was spoiled because it just marketed itself. These days I do a lot of Facebook ads and that's mm -hmm. pretty effective, mm -hmm. but that's really the only kind of paid advertising I do. Um, who's your competition? Now, I mean, you mentioned that there were loads of niche players that came in for a while, and certainly the influencers, you could argue that you're an influencer with, you, you're the original influencer, but with a with a with more of a media stability behind you and a media model behind you than a lot of mm -hmm. influencers. But I'm curious who you see as your competition now. I think it depends on the slice of the business. Like, I think I probably have the most competition in publishing. Mm -hmm. books. Maybe there are some brands that are pretty strong that are doing a great job, but I don't think there's anyone really doing exactly what I do. I mean, of course, you know, I'm not the best at a lot of things. I mean, I'm being really honest with you. I'm not like super strong on Instagram. So there are plenty of people doing what I do on Instagram a lot better than I do, but I am fortunate enough to be able to sell that in with a whole partnership where it's just mm -hmm. a small slice. And the reason why I say I don't really have a lot of competition is because I don't think a lot of people are doing just that. There mm -hmm. are a lot of people selling just Instagram or just TikTok or just mm -hmm. YouTube. And I think I I do it all. So you can be you can be smaller on any one of those platforms than some of the, the hottest and the latest, mm -hmm. but you're tying it into a system that's much more attractive to a partner. Yeah, that's the goal. And also that's a way to stay above the trends because things get hot and cold very quickly in the digital space. Now, another part of your brand is, is that it's so much focused on you. You, your, your, your face, your voice, your tone, your, you know, everything about this is, you know, the brand is named after you. So uh, does it, can it have a life beyond you uh, or do you need to be ever present? And is that an issue? Um, it's a good question. I think that I am a large part of it, but at the same time, I'm uh, I'm also like very much in the background because a lot of times people know the name Hungry Girl, they don't know Lisa Lillian. Mm -hmm. So I think it could exist without me, although I love being the face of the brand and the voice of the brand. I enjoy the video content. I enjoy the back and forth and the very close relationship I have with the audience, but I do think it can live without me. Like Hungry Girl Magazine is super successful. I'm a very small part of that. It's not like my face is all over the, the covers of those issues. Um, but it's just a careful sort of balance between having a lot of me or enough of me and not too much of me. How, how do you service the base? You mentioned you like having that relationship with readers, uh, but you've got 
more than a million across all these different platforms. So I'm curious how you make choices about um, how you dip in, have that sort of one-to-one -one connection with readers, because I imagine the demand and the expectations are pretty high with such a personalized brand like yours. Yeah, I mean, I we have a lot of back and forth with them. I do a lot of polling of the audience. I like to pop onto Facebook and Amazon and have a very friendly, accessible sort of relationship with the audience. I feel, and I've done over the years, probably hundreds and hundreds of book signings and appearances. And I feel like the one thing that I notice wherever I go is that people just think they're my friend. And I love that. I think it's a very emotional brand, which is a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to build. And that has come out of like, truly, I, for the first 10 years, I was reading and answering almost every email that came in because I take it very personally. If I write mm -hmm. about a product that I love and someone said it tastes bad, I would take the time to write back and say, no, it really, are you sure you're preparing it right? And I, you know, I, I take everything really personally. So I try to make the audience feel like they are my friends because on some level, I feel like they are my friends. Do you have a lot, I, I want to talk about video because you make so much across so many of the different platforms. Um, it's a very practical issue about how you manage all that. But but also, is is video the new email for another generation? I mean, is that, do you have uh, a lot of your base that's really exclusively connected to you through video? And is that sort of a channel you're starting to think of in same, the same way you did traditionally about email? Um, the short answer is no because I don't have as much traction, nearly as much traction in video as I do in the email. The mm. email is still the core of the brand, the bread and butter of the brand, something I do best. And it's, you know, the easiest group to mobilize. I mm. feel the strongest connection with the email audience. I think video, and it could be the nature of the platforms that people are watching video on. It's just that like, scrolling through video mentality. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel as much of a connection with the audience that way, but I, at the same time, I feel like I have to be doing video. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, I hope I answered your question yeah, there. No, 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 that, that, no, that was a very interesting answer is that, is that you may actually have a larger footprint on the platforms in which you're least connected with the audience and that email is still that core. Well, you can also control it, right? So I, on Facebook, I think I have a little more, if you look at the numbers of Hungry Girl on Facebook, it's like 1.5 or 1.6 million. I don't have that many in my email list. I have probably around a million, but we control on some level how we reach those people. Mm -hmm. I know when we send an email out to a million people, it's going to reach those people for the most part. In Facebook, I don't love the idea of having to depend on algorithms and whatever, whichever way the wind is blowing in social media, reaching the audience that wants to be reached. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I highly encourage email marketing and email um, and having that direct, you know, the direct way to reach that audience. Is um is is video the greater source across those platforms? Is video in the end a great, even though it may not have the deeper connection? Is it the greater source of revenue leads? I mean, if if, if affiliate marketing and, and pushing people to links is one of the main revenue streams, is video more effective at that than email right now? For me, no. For me, it's mm -hmm. not more effective, but I like having video because video in my world is something that I sell just for like a credibility piece. So mm -hmm. if I have a partner and they have a new food product, there's value in having me 
touch and feel and hold and discuss the product and they get to use that video in their world. And that's sort of a high ticket item, even mm -hmm. more so than just running a video on my site that might get 10, 20, 30, or 40,000 views. It's mm -hmm. not nearly as effective as just the editorial in the newsletter. Have you ventured into CPG co-branding yourself? Have you licensed the brand out for, for CPG? Is that, a, is that a model that's worked or hasn't worked for you? I would say we tried, we dabbled in that. It worked to some degree. It was fun seeing Hungry Girl and the logo on the back of 7 million cereal boxes and mm -hmm. all of that. But at the end of the day, I feel like I'm a better aggregator. And it's mm -hmm. the, the brand, it's, it's a, a smarter play for me to tell people what products I enjoy rather than put the products out. Hmm. So, and now let's circle back to email again, 20 plus years of, of email. And for all the time that I've been covering email, which is about that long, um, and, and you have too heard about predictions of its death. Um, with every new generation, we're told they don't read email, um, all the other platforms that they use. Um, it's true that generally across the board, open rates are, are, are down. Deliverability is getting more challenging as all of the various email platforms change their rules on a semi-monthly basis. Um, what have you done to fight against the clutter, to fight against plummeting open rates, to fight against deliverability issues? What are the things that have been most effective for you? Well, content is king. I remember when I started Hungry Girl and it was so successful, my dad said to me, don't give away your secrets. And I said, dad, the secret is good content. That's not a secret. Go try to copy that. You know, like if, if you have something people want, they will remain loyal and they'll be there. And at the end of the day, I think that's what works for me and for the brand. Mm -hmm. um, deliverability, sure, we've had our struggles over the years. Absolutely. But I I feel strongly that email is here to stay, at least in my world. I mean, it, it's clearly the strongest platform we have. And mm -hmm. other things are more trendy and they come and they go. And especially social media platforms where there's no guarantee you're going to reach your audience. I think you control your email list. And if you have good content and you're giving them what they want, it's, you know, it's not going anywhere in my world. I, lo I love it. <laughs> Diehard email fan over here. <laughs> what's uh what's next? So what's what's coming up in the next year? What'll be the new, what'll be the next zig or zag that you're gonna that you think you'll have to make? It's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm always shocked. I never really think about it. I started Hungry Girl without a business plan. I was probably the only person that launched this business. I didn't spend very much money. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I said, as I grow, I'm going to just take all the opportunities as they come my way. Shocking that I have a magazine now going on six years mm -hmm. when print is apparently dying. So I don't know. I know I have a couple more books on the way. I know I have another at least year or two of magazines on the way. The podcast is going strong. Um, I, you know, personally, I've become more involved in wrongful convictions. Strangely enough, I know it's a little yes. bit of a talk about zigging and zagging. And I am starting a podcast called Recipe for Justice. Wow. So it's walk the line of um, justice. And I don't want to say food, but you know, it's going to, we have a lot of crossover in my audience. The, mm -hmm. the true crime fans are women. They tend to be 30s through 60s. And mm -hmm. that's, that's my audience. That's the true crime audience. So I'm hoping to like launch a little bit of a new brand out of, uh, out of that. 
That's interesting. That'll yeah. be that'll be a that'll be a fascinating synergy. It's between... fascinating. And I'm you know what? Honestly, I'm not doing that to make money. I'm doing that to do to make the world a better place right. and to educate people. And at this point, after doing what I've been doing for so long, that's gonna really that'll fill my heart and make me happy. Uh, Lisa Lillian, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for hitting play on Media Post's Brand Insider podcast. We're here each week interviewing marketing executives from large and small, legacy and emerging brands. They share their experiences navigating the challenges of commercial clutter, media distraction, and consumer disinterest. You can also subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter for edited text editions of these Q&As. For this and all of the marketing and media news reporting MediaPost has provided the industry for two decades, head over to MediaPost.com. And if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for Brand Insider, you can always reach me, Steve Smith, at steve at MediaPost.com. Until next week, let's market carefully out there.